Well, we'll get this conference off on the right foot, but the first problem is, do I look like John Riesinger? <laughs> he was scheduled to do this. And you might wonder what I'm doing here. I forgot my suspenders, but the sweater, it's a little warm. I'm taking it off. You know I'm not John Riesinger, okay? So how did I get here? If you know how to get this through a phone line, then you know how I got here. If you don't know how to do that, he will be holding an unscheduled seminar while we're here. I'm passing the buck. <laughs> my, my biggest problem with having to do this is the 15 minutes. But the next speaker, Chad Breston, came to me with a problem. The problem was, Jackie, I don't have enough material to fill the time. Well, can you help me out? So he's going to give me another 15 minutes. Right, Chad? we got to move to cover this. For those of you who are not familiar with this book, it is the second book in the series that was started by Ben Merkel. And I wrote to him, asked him, I didn't get an answer back to, how did you ever come up with the idea for 40 questions? But anyway, this is the third in the series, the first one by Merkel with the elders and uh, deacons, and then the next one, 40 questions about interpretation by Plummer. There's a little bit of differences between some of the books, but it's a great idea. If you haven't read any of the books in that series yet, get started, because the next one scheduled for publication that I know of is by Ware on the Atonement. And that's going to be a real highlight. Uh, I'm going to suggest, rather than go through the biographical material to introduce you to Tom Schreiner, if you want to get on the faculty website at Southern Seminary, get on Zondervan's site or Craigle's site, you will find information. There's a lot of information out there. It's good to learn in the preface of this book that the author's working on a commentary on Galatians. Well, the work is done. If you don't have it yet, I want to recommend that. If you want to take a look at it, I have a copy here. Also, his interpreting the Pauline epistles. So when this man writes about Christians and biblical law, he is one of the most highly respected Pauline scholars, and this has been a lifelong passion of study for him. He has authored and or edited at least 16 books, including the 10 listed on the faculty website. There's some that are not listed there, including this one and the one on Galatians. He has authored also numerous scholarly articles and published them in many, many journals. A lot of those are listed on the faculty website, but not all. If you go on to Galaxy Software's Theological Journal Library and do a search for his name on, with the author listing, you will come up with 32 different articles, editorials, book reviews that he has done. And I would uh, suggest if you haven't read Schreiner, that's a good place to start to get a taste of, from the articles before you dive into any of the books. Now the most important thing to know about this author, if you're not familiar with him or with the book, Besides the level of scholarship he brings to the table on this issue is the fact that he defies labels. In this he has something in common with men like Carson and Moo, who cannot be neatly packaged into any extant theological system such as covenant theology or dispensational theology. Schreiner is definitely not a dispensationalist. Here's a quote. Now that Christ has come, however, this is from the book, by the way. Now that Christ has come, however, the status of Israel as a distinct political entity, a kind of church and state combined together, is no longer significant. Israel's role as a political and national entity has ended. 
Well, that kind of settles that issue for me. Page 92. The fact that he does not fit into covenant theology appears even more clearly than this. His teachings concerning the tripartite division of the Mosaic law in chapter 14 of the book, the status of the Mosaic law under the new covenant, chapter 9, or question 9, and the relevance of the Decalogue's fourth commandment, question 37, would certainly seem to distance him from traditional covenant theology's positions on these issues. Schreiner cannot be put into a box or neatly packaged, and that is something that may be a benefit and to his credit. He does not profess allegiance to the flag of any system and therefore cannot be accused of arriving at his conclusions due to pressing scripture into the mold of a confessional document or the traditional teachings of a system of theology. On any spectrum of theological systems and evangelical scholarship these days, Schreiner certainly must be placed in that great gray area between the traditional systematic extremes on either end. Now, I'm not going to go through all of the endorsements. The endorsements are on the book. They're out there on the websites. Uh, Das wrote in the foreword about him. Uh, Simon Gathercole has written an endorsement, and Michael Wilkins at Biola. But this, this one says it all, and some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this from Justin Taylor. If I had to recommend, and some of us would echo this, so if somebody says, what do you think about this book? Here's what he says, and, and I would agree with him. If I had to recommend just one book on the role of law in biblical theology, it would be Tom Schreiner's 40 Questions on about Biblical Law, Christians and Biblical Law. It would be this book. Now that's really saying something when you consider the literature that's out there. Before we proceed any further, by a show of hands, let me see how many people have purchased this book. Okay, and of those who have purchased it, how many have read it? Okay. We'll see how much I can change that because I get a commission. I wrote to Dr. Schreiner and I said, if I do a good, now this is true, if I do a good enough job, he might see a spike in sales. And he said, well, the sales are doing just fine. Thank you very much. <laughs> that, that's true. <laughs> in the introduction to the book, the author presents four answers explaining his motivation for the book and the importance of the subject. Number one, one's understanding of the law determines how one puts the whole Bible together. Number two, even though the purpose of the book is not to study dispensationalism, covenant theology, theonomy, or Lutheranism per se, those who study the role of the law will have a firmer grasp of these theological systems. These systems were developed in an attempt to put the whole Bible together. And as noted above, the law plays a central role in such an enterprise. Number three, the role of the law is closely related to justification. Understanding the law, then, is of the utmost importance for one's theology of salvation. And last, number four, the law relates to the will of God. All believers long to do God's will and to please him. What place does the law occupy in terms of Christian obedience and sanctification? At the end of his introduction, he sums up, and this is a good summary, the study of the law is intellectually challenging, theologically crucial, and practically relevant. It cannot be dismissed as an academic enterprise that is unrelated to the everyday lives of believers. 
Now, just a brief overview of the book. And by the way, I'm just introduction and overview. Then we will get into highlights and insights. And then the last five minutes, reactions and responses. And John, when my time's done, why don't you just wave your hand back there, all right? And I'll try to pay attention. There's a game called 20 Questions. If you combine this with Double Jeopardy, perhaps you can explain the background to the 40 Question series by Craigle. In any case, this approach enables an author like Schreiner to deal with a broad span of detailed issues in an almost catechetical fashion, sorting through the materials on the subject and sifting the wheat from the chaff has enabled Schreiner to frame significant questions. Asking the right questions would, be, would appear to be a major part of the task he faced in producing this work. The reader would do well to ask, if I had to reduce all of the issues involved with the Christian and biblical law to 40 questions, what questions would I want to see asked and answered? Dr. Schreiner states, and this is in an email to me, I came up with the 40 questions because I, I asked him who came up with it. Were these tasked to them or what was the source of the question? I came up with the 40 questions. One or two of them may have come from the series editor Ben Merkel. I actually can't remember for sure, but I came up with most of them. There can be little disagreement whether or not Schreiner has played 20 questions double jeopardy well and that he asked the right questions. There are five parts to the book, the law in the Old Testament, the law in Paul, the law in the Gospels and Acts, the law in the general epistles, and the law in contemporary issues. The second part, the law in Paul, is the only one where the questions addressed are divided into subparts, of which there are three. Questions related to the new perspective, Questions related to the role of the law in the Christian life and questions related to justification. 22 of the 40 questions are found in this second part, the law in Paul. While the other three, uh, the others have three for the Old Testament, eight for the Gospels and Acts, three for the general epistles, and four for contemporary issues, respectively. The 40 questions cover less than 200 pages of the book, actual pages that the questions and answers are written on. Averaging less than five pages per question and answer. One question, the notorious number 37, is the Sabbath still required for Christians, has the most pages devoted to it at nine. Only two questions are covered with eight pages each. What is the Old Testament background for the righteousness of God and what does Paul mean by the righteousness of God? Each of the author's answers to the 40 questions ends with a summary that contains statements characterized by brevity, simplicity, and clarity, leaving no doubt in the reader's mind what the author's final answer is. These 200 questions, oh, one other thing, at the end of every chapter after the summaries, five reflection questions. And that makes this book suitable for classes. If you have like a 40-week and you allow 12 other weeks during the year if you want to work through it in Sunday school or Bible studies. When you look at the five questions at the end of every chapter with a total now of 200 questions, excellent, makes it an excellent tool. And that's a feature found in throughout the 40 question series. Eight figures are included through the work tabulating verbs used for obedience to the law, words for God's commands, verbs used for disobedience to the law in the Old Testament, references to the law as a whole in Romans and Galatians, commands and prohibitions that reflect the Ten Commandments in the Pauline corpus, parallels in two Pauline passages, Romans 10, 3 through 6, and Philippians 3, 9, 
work prohibited on the Sabbath, and activities permitted on the Sabbath. Schreiner has included a basic bibliography. It occupies only four pages, but this is actually four times the size of Merkel's or Plummer's bibliographies. It provides a solid foundation for further research in the subject matter and includes brief annotations of one to four sentences. Only one of his own works is included. Other works are found in the helpful footnotes throughout the book, of which there are not many, including five other works of Schreiner that are not listed in the bibliography. It's worthy of note that if these additional works had been included in the bibliography, they may have obscured the author's apparent intent there. Nevertheless, they should not be ignored. There is a helpful 17-page scripture index and a two-page ancient sources index. One of my pet peeves, it uh, wasn't there, was the subject index. And you would think that would be in order. The lack of one might felt to be a drawback on the part of researchers. However, the, with the 40 questions and just using the table of contents, you can find what you want to find in this book very fast. And if a digital version of the book comes up in the future, it's a moot point anyway. Let's move on to highlights and insights. Question nine, does Paul teach that the Old Testament law is now abolished? This is a quote. I want to give you a taste for the book. If you don't have it and you haven't read it, these highlights and insights will, will whet your appetite. Guaranteed. Therefore, it follows that if the Mosaic Covenant is no longer in effect, it follows it is no longer in effect because it has been replaced by the New Covenant, then the laws which belong to that covenant are no longer binding either. The laws are not authoritative as stipulations of the Old Covenant since that covenant has passed away. Page 67. It seems hard to imagine how Paul could be any clearer in saying that the era of the law has ended. Jews in Paul's day believed that the law's role in history was to counter sin, that it was God's agent to reverse the sin and devastation set in motion by Adam. Astonishingly, Paul argues the opposite view in Romans 5.20. The law did not decrease the trespass, but increased it. It is imperative that Christians today understand that we do not live any longer under the old covenant, but the new covenant that has been inaugurated in Jesus Christ. Three minutes left. Oh, my goodness. Does Paul distinguish between the moral, ceremonial, and civil law? The law is both abolished and fulfilled in Christ. It is quite difficult to distinguish between what is moral and ceremonial in the law. The fundamental reason the laws of Israel are not binding upon believers is that Christians do not live under the covenant given to Israel. Now, I could, I could press on with that. I want to just give you some highlights because I'm running out of time. Are Christians under the third use of the law? He has a very provocative quote from uh, Martin Luther here. We will regard Moses as a teacher, but we will not regard him as our lawgiver. Another equally provocative statement is found on the same page, and this is from Schreiner. The idea that believers are under the third use of the law is mistaken. For we have seen that the entire law is abolished for believers. Some of the commands are from the Old Testament law. Surely they function as a standard for the lives of believers today. Still, derivation from the Old Testament does not make them authoritative. Now tell me that's not provocative. I'm, I'm not going to go into the Sabbath one. If you've been following the blog, Justin Taylor's blog, I will say this about it, though. When that blog hit, hundreds 
of responses came in. It was only open for a little while, and immediately the next day, of course, R. Scott Clark jumped on that day, the next day, and since then. And so I have, there's a lot of tremendous things he says about the Sabbath there that I will get to in a moment. Now, insights. Good afternoon, Mr. Phelps. Your mission, Jim, should you decide to accept it, is to answer this question in five pages or less. What is the new perspective on Paul, and how should it be assessed? As always, should you fail, the John Bunyan Conference will disavow any knowledge of your actions. <laughs> this reviewer will self-destruct in five seconds. Good luck, Jim. You may see it differently. But Schreiner's answer to this question, which is question 20, it's right in the middle of the book, is not only central to the book, but may indeed be the high point of the book as well. I didn't expect it, but I have to say that. Here's some fast quotes. The norm, we should be quick to say, is not a law above God. Rather, the norm is God himself. We should not pit redemptive history against anthropology. These are from all different parts of the book now. The reference to the spirit in contrast to the letter supports the claim that there is a reference to real obedience for the spirit is the gift of the new covenant inaugurated by Christ. The fulfillment centers on Jesus Christ and thus should be understood in terms of the newness that is realized in Christ. The focus is no longer on the law, but on Christ himself. What is striking here is the centrality of Christ for obtaining eternal life. The Old Testament commands to love God and neighbor find their goal and criterion in Jesus himself. John does not deny that there is grace and truth in the law. Therefore, the grace in Christ replaces the grace that is in the law. It is acknowledged then that there is grace in the law, but the grace found in Christ is superior. Grace and truth exist in the law, but they reach their climax and purest expression in Christ. And then an interesting one on James with the implanted word directly connecting it to Jeremiah 31 and the promise to place the law in the heart. Now, when he gets to preaching, the last chapter, preaching the law, first, we must always preach in light of the storyline of the entire Bible. Second, there is always the danger that a focus on moral norms will crowd out the gospel. And I have to get this in. As I read this book, one thing stuck out to me, and it was this. I'm done, right, John? Okay, it is gratifying to read at several points in this work that the author has had to rethink his understanding on the teaching of certain passages of Scripture. I found that four times. So here is a man humble enough to understand. I used to think this way, but I don't anymore. I'm still learning, and I'm being provoked, and I'm rethinking things. That meant a lot to me. Now, I have reactions and responses. I have this in digital form. If you'd like some of them, there are such a few problems with the book that I had. But one of them was R. Scott Clark. And I really appreciate... Tom Schreiner for writing this book because of what he did to R. Scott Clark. It's like, pull the pin on the grenade, throw it in the room, walk away, and I think R. Scott Clark went out the window. You know what he's been doing ever since? Yeah. He's been walking in circles. And you can read. There's seven different, well, you can't read it anymore. They pulled the, the uh, Heidelberg down April 26, maybe. Is that the date we came up with? But I, we, we've been able to get back at it. it it's like what he did is covenant of grace, Covenant of grace, confessions, confessions, covenant of grace. You ever hunt rabbits? He's going in a circle and he, he ends where he starts. That's his answer to this. And 
Tom Schreiner did it to him by writing this book. I'm done. We're going to do the uh, Q&A time. I'm going to move the mic over into its place here. And I would ask you again, if you'd like to ask a question, step up to the mic promptly, state who you are, where you're from, and ask the question. Um, any preambles to the question, keep them really short, if not at all. The question, sit down, the question will be answered, and others will have an opportunity to come up. Let's not have you know, three follow-up questions to the question. Uh, let's give everybody opportunity to step up, and if there's time after your question, we'll get them going as well. We have about 27 minutes here for that. So I'm going to move the mic. I, you know, I, you're thinking about covenant lawsuits and the minor prophets in particular, and, and here you're, you're giving Stevens really, uh, it sounds like it has all of the pieces of, of a covenant lawsuit. Would you consider that as such? maybe the final covenant lawsuit how would it fit in, as far as that goes um, I think it does uh, in the sense that it, it's part of a pattern that's developing I personally think the final covenant lawsuit is the book of Revelation Right. by the way Mo Bergeron Sovereign Grace Fellowship Boston, New Hampshire but certainly okay. um, it, it, this, this particular passage as um, depending on who the commentator is and who's, who's writing has anywhere between 13 direct quotes and then dozens more allusions. Um, and I just picked, you know, two or three, uh, but certainly the covenant lawsuits and if is there. Yeah. And pulling from the minor prophets wouldn't be all that difficult again because there's so much material here. Um, in fact, I brought up Amos. Amos is one of those minor right. prophets that's bringing indictment, and Stephen pulls Amos in. And sets I had in mind Malachi, and, and uh, yeah. Uh, listen, no stairs for you, brother. That was excellent. <laughs> i got to be careful <laughs> around Mo. <laughs> and and uh, this is why I don't spend all kinds of money to run off to the Gospel Coalition. I'd rather spend my money here. Let me know what you think of this. Who are you? Oh, John Jeffrey. You want to know who I am? Jack Jeff. When you got to David and Solomon, yeah. it, it provoked my thinking because what was said about David seemed to be reminiscent of Abraham. What happened with Joseph seemed to be reminiscent of what happened with Solomon. And what, I, what it got me thinking about is the possibility that we have not five things, but six things going on here. If we can consider like Death Wish 1, Death Wish 2, uh, Moses 1 and Moses 2. Moses out of Egypt, Moses coming back into Egypt to bring them out. So we have Abraham and Joseph, Moses 1, Moses 2, and David Solomon with the suggestion that we then have Christ and Stephen. Have, has that come up in any of your studies? No, I haven't seen that before. Um, I think James Hamilton's making the connection between Joseph and David. Um, I guess I hadn't, I hadn't considered that. That'd be interesting. I do know that much is made of uh, Moses, he spends a lot of time with Moses. Obviously, that's because that's part of the indictment here. You've got, uh, so he does, Moses almost has two stories wrapped into one, and that's almost, uh, Stephen is going to reinforce and reemphasize his point with the Sanhedrin by camping on Moses a while. Um, but to see those those doublets there, I guess that's, that's we, you know, I guess they hadn't, hadn't thought, thought about it in that way. I do know 
as I consider what I saw in the text, there were some that wanted to split David and Solomon. Um, I tend, because of this text, I tend to look at the David and Solomon event in the Old Testament as almost being one and the same. That Solomon is almost like a bookend, and I think Sam, but the, the books of Samuel and Kings tend to handle it this way. Solomon's almost a bookend to David. Like David's kind of the rise, Solomon's the apex, and then Solomon begins the, the downfall of Israel's history. But the beginning of Solomon's story is David. So you almost, you almost have this, the covenant's made with David, so the emphasis falls there. But I think in, in the, the Davidic covenant, we shouldn't forget that the backside of it is Solomon. So I tend to see David and Solomon in tandem, and certainly I think that's how, um, how Stephen is handling it here. But I haven't, I haven't thought about the other connections. John Riesinger. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> after, after listening to you, I, I started four congregations. If I started another one, which I'm not going to, I would call it St. Stephen New Covenant Church. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Absolutely. <laughs> what, in all of your preparation, what is the general view of the gist of Acts 7 from those who wouldn't understand or appreciate New Covenant theology, what do they what do they get out of this passage of Scripture, and where where would they be upset with what you said today? Huh. <laughs> okay, now I set up my own indictment. <laughs> Thank you, John. And he wonders why I'm a thorn in his side. Oh my word! How do um. Well, for, you know, like anything else, this passage is handled all sorts of different ways. The predominance, if you're liberal, is to think that this guy's just some scatterbrain that's a bumbling fool when he gets up there and he just kind of puts some things together, throws it up. I mean, uh, as, as if, 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 you don't, if you don't presume from the very beginning that there's an organic connection and redemptive history between the various events, you, you will have problems. You'll see... You know, it's almost like Stephen is stumbling for a response, never does really answer the charges, and then he finally ticks them off and they kill him. Um, that tends to be the uh, uh, one, one, I think there's a significant, I mean, we'll laugh, but there's a significant uh, school of scholarship down those, those lines. Um, I think, okay, here, here, here's the biggie. Um, and I, <laughs> is the tape still rolling? <laughs> I'm going to say that the, the big thing I see here, the pe I already mentioned one, people tend to see the obsolescence of the temple in this text, but they don't see the obsolescence of the law, and I'm going to say that's because they're dealing with the presuppositions and they're on a grid that won't let them say that. All right? Right. The predominance thing here is that, that Stephen then kind of cops to the charge of denigrating the temple, but reaffirms the law in reaffirming Moses. That's, I'd say that's a, a significant piece of scholarship. Um, uh, in, in fact, Bach and some of the others that are, uh, tend to think that the Steve is very, Stephen's very positive with the law. So the presentation I'm giving here is that, no, Stephen also had an, it's not, not simply the temple in his purview, in his scope, but he, you know, he's not aiming simply at the temple here. He's also aiming at the law. Um, it would not go over well with those that are trying to protect the law as something that we need to, uh, that, is, that is binding on the church today. 
Um, I, I, I tended to see that quite a bit in the text. And then there are those that simply think Stephen got a raw deal. And that he was, you know, the, the other huge school of scholarship, what do you do with Luke? That Luke tends to be a guy that, that the scholars view as somebody that's trying to reinforce and really likes the temple, likes the temple worship, and is arguing and providing an apologetic for uh, the Jews, just, uh, you know, true worship in the temple. And so he doesn't write anything that's derogatory about the temple. I mean, Luke, the book of Luke ends with the disciples there. Uh, praising and uh, teaching and praising God in the temple. I mean, that's how the book of Luke ends. Uh, what I don't think they consider, though, is Luke's own way of how he's handling in the development of Luke and Acts, how he is showing the progression of uh, this Messiah that has come and is now rewriting the text, so to speak. So that even though they are in the temple praising God, those believers understand full well that this house is coming down at some point because that's, those are things that Jesus Christ said even in Luke. Luke's, Luke talks about Luke 23, 21, 23. Uh, these stones are coming down. So even, you know, Christ says these stones are coming down. They, the scholars tend to make a lot, big deal about the fact that after Christ's resurrection, everybody was back in the temple without fully taking into account that everything else that follows, including Stephen's sermon, I think is a big one, that the early church had latched on to what Christ said about him being the temple and that that temple was, that would, would finally come down. My opinion is that Stephen probably, among all other apostles, probably had made that a central part of his message and why he got singled out. That this, this, this temple was tempor temporary, the law is temporary, and because he was the rising star, they took they took aim at him. And you know, I, the other thing too is I think people tend to forget that the indictment of Christ in his own trial was, "You're denigrating the temple." So it's not just Stephen. So if there is, does that answer the question? Um, yeah. Uh, the pe people that like the law are not going to like what I have to say um, because they're going to see Stephen defending the law. In, in the sermon. Sir. Interesting that you brought up that Saul was in attendance at the stoning. Could have been the time possibly when Paul was referring to the time, uh, well, when the Lord says, why do you kick against the goads? Oh, yeah, yeah, Could yeah, the yeah. goads have been a part of Stephen's message oh, yeah. that penetrated? Yeah. Okay. Interesting, though, uh, Paul later says uh, in his defense when he too is being blamed for desecrating the temple or saying something negative against the temple by the fact that he was bringing Gentiles in, so-called. He says in chapter 25, verse 8, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple uh, have I offended anything at all. So Paul seems to be kind of contradicting in a way what you're saying Saul, I mean Stephen was saying uh, against the New, well, presenting the new temple. I don't know if you can follow my eye. It's just a thought I want to throw out that, I mean, Stephen is rather bold in the way he comes across, whereas Paul is saying, I didn't say anything against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple. Anyway, just some food for thought. The other point I just want to make would be, yeah. more importantly, uh, in, in this seventh chapter here, 
something that I would see would be of extreme importance. When Jesus was before the high priest and he was asked by the high priest, are you the Christ? And he says, if I tell you, you wouldn't believe me. But the next time you will see me, when you will see me seated on the right hand of the power of God. And could it be that the very high priest that Jesus was in front of was the very high priest that Stephen was in front of. And so when Stephen says, I see Jesus, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, that it was in this way that the high priest was seeing Jesus at the right hand of God. I don't know if you ever thought of that or if any of you others have ever no, looked at it that way. How was that, how was that statement of Christ fulfilled? And to me, it seems like the important, the climax of Stephen's message is, as you said, the only other time the term son of man appears after the Gospels is right here. And that son of man expression likely hocks back to Daniel 7, 13. Right when the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days and right. the kingdom is transferred now to him and he has all dominion and power and glory and all nations and kingdoms are going to serve him. Just a couple points. Thank you. Yes, sir. Um, Berkeley Greider from um, New Covenant in Greenville, South Carolina. And my question is... If you were to take this passage and everything that you brought out of it today and you were to stand before you, all of the church in America and preach it not to simply say what it says but to convict them of sin that, that they might repent and in the same way that um, Stephen preaches really with a goal that some might repent. Um, in other words, my question is, if, if you had to draw application out of this to preach to a congregation of people, how would you do it? And what would you say? What would your points be? I actually have that here. <laughs> Very good. Um... I'll just, I'll quickly, I'm not going to preach this, but I'm going to quickly run through these. Um, one of the presuppositions that I have, and you don't know if this is going to answer the question the way you want it answered. I typically, um, well, I'm a firm believer that the, the hermeneutic is the homiletic. When I say that, I don't think the, I do not think that application runs too far away from the original text, and the original intent. So whatever it is that Luke wanted for Theophilus and the other church is the same thing he wants for us to hear it, and same thing that the, the rest of America, uh, the evangelical church, would need to hear. I don't think, I, I tend to shy away from trying to pull application that doesn't seem to be part of the text. I think Luke's, no, Luke's, I think Luke's intent would be the same for us. Um, so here's, here's what I have written, um, and you can toss these aside if you want. Uh, Stephen's sermon is a proclamation of the gospel from the Old Testament. Um, scripture supports Stephen's understanding of Christ as the new temple. I don't think we have to. Um, Moses preached Christ. Uh, you know, if we're preaching from Moses and we're not preaching Christ, uh, we're missing something. Um, 
As the church grows from Jerusalem to the rest of the world, it carries with it the message that Christ fulfilled the law and the law's curse, and that he's the law, the lawgiver, and the judge. Uh, that should have some implication for us in how we treat Jesus. <laughs> um, you know, Jesus is our authority. Jesus can tell us where to get off. <laughs> he can tell us what to do. We are to obey. He is our authority. He's the law. You know, what would Jesus do really does become a, an impossible standard uh, in one sense because none of us can live up to that standard. At the same time, what would Jesus do does become the measure for us uh, because he is the law and he is the lawgiver. He's the measure by which all things are measured. Um, before we get too hard on the Sanhedrin, we have to see ourselves as people that have stoned Stephen and killed Jesus. Um, if we had the chance, we would have stoned Stephen. If we had the chance, we would have killed Jesus. Um, we would have crucified Christ. Uh, we have to see ourselves in this text at some point as people that rage against the idea that Jesus is all that we would ever want or should be. I mean, we, we, we are people that want to see we are people that want to feel. We want to touch. We want to handle. We don't want Jesus. That's how I, uh, that's, that's, that's one big application. Um, and then certainly uh, the whole, the, per, the, the persecution and suffering theme here. Um, we, you know, as you, as you trace Acts, in fact, as you trace the New Testament, the Via Dolorosa of Christ becomes Via Dolorosa for the church. We are on a march to our own martyrdom. Uh, and it's not, you know, I think it's easy for us as Americans to simply translate it into, okay, that means every day I die to myself and every day because I crucify myself, which is true. But we really are supposed to live lives that, in a sense, if push came to shove, would get us killed. We are supposed to speak in a way that would possibly tick off the wrong crowd. Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't live at peace with everyone. We should. That's not the point. But in living at peace with everyone, we are to proclaim the cross of Jesus no matter what it means. Um, so the early church can expect and, and can expect martyrdom. And so can we. You know, Theophilus, this is what you can expect. This is how you will be treated. And so that's, that's for us. The other thing, too, is don't miss this. I stopped, it, I stopped at the beginning of chapter 8. I mean, this, this story really flows right into, I think, almost like 8, 4, 8, 5 is where I think the story actually ends. And this is where the church, the persecution hits the church. I mean, this is the first shot. And so part of our, part of our story is then that the spread of the gospel comes uh, as a result of the martyrdom of the church. You know, blood will be spilt in the spread of the gospel. Um, the other thing we need to see here is that we have an advocate. We have somebody that has come to our defense. In the throne room, in the courtroom of God's law, we've been found wanting, and somebody stands there in our behalf every day of our lives. Hallelujah. Um, and dwelling with his people, Christ bears witness to his people. 
and I think that, that that's where I end my uh, my application. So I mean, there's all sorts of ways to to pull application, but those are a few that I pulled. Yes, sir. I'm uh, Steve Cowden from Greenville, South Carolina. <clears throat> and uh, at the beginning, uh, in your uh, introduction, uh, you mentioned that Stephen's rehearsal of uh, the history of Israel was found in several other places. I noticed you didn't mention Acts 13, where Paul does a sort of a similar thing there. Absolutely. And again, if I had sermon number two, <laughs> <laughs> Acts 13 is almost a parallel to, uh, to Acts 7. No, that's okay. good. Thank okay, you. Okay, I was just wondering yes. if that was an oversight or intentional. Um, I was just sitting there thinking, oh, I just wonder if you forgot it. But then I only you, have two hours. Yeah. Well, just in mentioning. <laughs> and many of you are grateful, I'm sure. Yeah, no, I mean, Acts 13, Acts 13 is a great parallel. I mean, that's a great place to go if you're looking for more of this same type of, of, of preaching. Absolutely. Okay. Well, um, when you made the, the mention that Paul was there and there was the inception of his theology, that was thrilling. And so I just wondered if you had more comment on that Acts 13. But... Uh, We'll hear that, I guess, another time. <laughs> no, I, you know, you're right. No, X13 is a is really a great tandem parallel, and uh, I I use this as as an example. Um, and we were talking in the break. You know, this really has been, you know, seeing Stephen's sermon not as many of the commentators some scatterbrained idea where some guy is just thrown in front of the Sanhedrin and all I can get out is a bunch of bumbling words and some stories that don't tie to each other and don't match rather than seeing Stephen really unpacking redemptive history in a very biblical, theological, understandable way so much so that his audience understands what he's saying um, and like I said at the beginning other than Hebrews 11, there are a few places in Scripture where you can go where there's just in one spot this progression of, of redemptive history. So Acts 13 certainly has it. My name is Stephen Best from uh, DeKalb, <laughs> Illinois. Um, in your application, I think you made reference early and then moved on to the others that Stephen was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you comment a little bit more on the application, again, speaking to the American church as it relates to the gospel that is preached today and maybe the power or lack of power as it relates to that to just challenge us a little bit more on that? Yeah, well, first of all, when we talk about the gospel, the gospel in our evangelical um, milieu tends to be what we do, even like the sinner's prayer and uh, our belief. Rather than the gospel as Stephen presents it is what has been done for us. Um, Stephen's proclamation uh, is from the Old Testament. He did not, you know, he's not using here other New Testament scriptures. But he understands that, that what he has been witness to, and again, I tend to be one that thinks that Stephen was part of the 70. Um, what he had been witness to in Christ's life, death, and resurrection is the gospel. Uh, by the way, exaltation. <laughs> you always find if you're going to talk about the gospel, never, ever, ever leave out the exaltation. I think too often we used to say Christ's death and resurrection, and that's it. But at the beginning of Acts, you know, Peter's emphatic that that exaltation is part of, of the gospel that we preach. Um, but you know, too often, 
uh, in in today's circles, um, the 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 gospel is has either become something that is a social gospel, something that we do on the streets. Uh, you bring in social justice, all sorts of things. But we need to co- keep coming back to the fact that the gospel is outside of ourselves. It affects what it wants, and, and it affects what it will, what God will, in the hearts of those who hear it. Our confidence has to be in the message. Our confidence has to be in Christ's de- in Christ himself, his life, his death, his resurrection, his exaltation. Our confidence has to be in that. It's not in, I'm betraying probably my own presuppositions <laughs> as a presuppositionalist that my confidence is in the words and the scriptures, Christ um, giving us of himself through his word and affecting change and affecting um, regeneration in the hearts of those, of those who hear it and, and obey. So, is that, does that answer the question? Kind of, sort of. we'll do is we will offer um, 30 seconds. Someone wants to come up and start, that's fine. If not, we'll have a rest. So I have a question. I think the crowd wants to have a rest, but go ahead. All they have to do is ask. Um, so it really comes down to um, Hebrews 4 again um, you know it talks about there being a rest that we have not yet entered there's that language also throughout yep. the passage yep. right and so but your emphasis is you know we've already entered and so for me I'm not so um, comfortable letting that sit as the way that we talk about it. So I guess my, how would you what do you think the proper emphasis would be on the not yet aspects of it and how should we think about that and, and as we think about what it is to keep the Sabbath? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. Um, a great question. Deserves a great answer. Regrettably, I'm the one who's speaking, so we'll do our best. Now, I think the question is part of the larger issue, I think, in terms of Christian living. I mean, how do we live in this age where already we have the realities of being seated in the heavenlies? Every spiritual blessing that's possible is already ours because, as Blake was saying, why? We're in Christ. All of these blessings, every single blessing there is in the universe is ours because we are in Jesus Christ. We are already in the heavenlies. We are already with him at the right hand of the Father. We're all, we, but we are still fairly transparently here in this world. And so I think that that question, how do we understand how do we balance Sabbath rest in terms of what we've all, that we've already entered and there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God is just part of that wider issue. Uh, it's Sabbath, it's 
sanctification, positional sanctification, and working out our sanctification. It's all kinds of things. I, I guess, and this, this is just be what I would say, is that one of the things that we want to do is we want to take very seriously that because we are in Christ, we are in the Lord of the Sabbath. And we want to take extremely seriously this language here that those who have believed, those who have faith, have entered this rest. We are in this Sabbath rest. But, like everything, we are in the kingdom. But praise be to God, there is a greater consummated kingdom state yet to come. We are in Sabbath rest, but praise be to God, there is still a great consummated Sabbath rest yet to come. And so I think it's, it really is, and, and maybe I'm oversimplifying things, and if I'm oversimplifying things, that's too bad because I don't understand them any better than this. There's no deeper structures here. Uh, is that, like so many other things, there really is this, it is here now, but praise be to God, there's still more to come. I, I think history works this way. In fact, uh, this is, a, this I think, m- will indirectly answer your question. And if not, then hopefully you'll get lost in the rabbit trail and forget the question that I'm supposed to be answering. Uh, one of the things that, remember I said yesterday, I, 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 passed, I was in the library and I passed by that journal article on dispensationalism and the Sermon on the Mount, which would have been really helpful, and I apologize for not reading it. Uh, I, was, I didn't have time, honestly. I, you know, I had piles of books and articles on Pannenberg and Trolls and these guys and working through historiography. And, and one of the things which Pannenberg says and he's absolutely right. This isn't just him, but he actually says it very clearly and very well. Is that history is to be read and interpreted eschatologically. In other words, when people throw away the revelation of God, then history becomes this sort of incoherent, random shuffling of events. And it's all interpretation. This is why people are relativistic. If you want to know, this is why people are relativistic in terms of history. We can't know history. Well, why would anyone think something that dumb? You know, that's, the, that's sort of the common sense response. Of course we can know about things in the past. But their argument is, apart from there being a coherent world in which we live, all there is is a cessation of random events. And so there's no meaning inherent in historical events. It's just interpretation. We're imposing values retroactively and arbitrarily on those events. So history just sort of meaninglessly, randomly unfolds forward. Okay? So that what follows really is not significantly related to what went before. What's interesting about the temple then is that we can see clearly how the tabernacle is predicated on Eden, right? We've, we've talked about that, we've seen that. And then the same thing in the temple, the temple is just sort of a permanent tabernacle. And then the language of the new heavens and the new earth, Eden restored, Eden glorified, the tabernacle picked up, the temple picked up. Except for one thing. The very book of Hebrews, which talks about Sabbath rest and already not yet, is going to tell us that as much as the tabernacle was predicated on Eden, it was more predicated on the heavenlies. And so Eden itself, on which the tabernacle is based, is an ectype of the heavenly archetype. And so when we read 
redemptive history and salvation history. When we do biblical theology chronologically, we're seeing how God has revealed things in different eras. And we say, oh, starts with Eden, priest, on and on, temple, tabernacle, temple, Jesus, new heavens, new So we see that. But the tabernacle isn't what it is just because of what Eden was. We have to read history retrogressively. We read history starting with the eschaton backwards. Why is the tabernacle based on Eden? Actually, Eden's based on the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is based on the heavenlies. Okay? And so through all of our lives then, and through all of history, including Sabbath, there's a sense in which Sabbath is proleptic, right in Genesis 2. That is, it, 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 the, the, the final end is flowing backwards through history. The end gives us the interpretation of the beginning. And the thing is, this is the one I said yesterday, that you've got to love postmodernism. Because they're absolutely right. If there is no final, coherent, intelligible end point, there is no meaning at any stop along the way in the whole progression. And so they say, well, there is no meaning in history. There is no meaning in anything that happens. And they're absolutely right unless there's an alpha and an omega, a beginning and an end. And we have that. We have an alpha and an omega. We have a beginning and an end. And because we have an end point in the eschaton, new heavens and new earth, because we have a consummation, everything in this age makes sense. Okay? And so I'd say that's just part of that tension of living this out. Already not yet. But it's actually more a matter of not saying, well, because these things are true today, this just foreshadows what's coming. Actually, I think it's almost more accurate to say, for us chronologically, What's coming backshadows onto us. Rather than what's here today foreshadowing the future, the future backshadows and illuminates today. Okay? So I'd almost want to say, yes, we're in it today. There's more to come. And instead of trying to understand the not yet by the already, you understand the already by the not yet. That's not really helpful. I'm sorry. All right, next question. Ed Ross, York, Pennsylvania. Uh, just to follow up on Berkeley's question, I really don't see the future aspect in this passage unless you go there with verse 11. Prior to that, he's comparing historical Israel and unbelief and not entering in with the true rest that has now been offered. And my point is, could we not read verse 11 as in the same vein as give all diligence to make your calling and election sure? Examine yourselves whether you're in the faith rather than laboring for some future rest. So that's not really a question. That's sort of a comment, right? Well, I'm asking, is, in your opinion, is that a legitimate application of 11? Well, since you're insinuating clearly that it is a legitimate application, I'm going to say yes. (laughs) 
You know, it, well, it, l let me put it this way. I, I also increasingly don't feel the need, I really don't, I, I don't feel the need to adjudicate and have an opinion on the spot. I, I've never thought of that. So I appreciate the comment, and I'll think about that. Okay, Appreciate that. Anyway, shooting off the top of my head, trying to respond to that is not going to be helpful to anyone. Thank you. See here, uh, I was I want to be in Hebrews four too. And I just want to uh, sorry, just before you do. Sure. If I may, the passage is Matthew twelve. That's what I was talking about. But anyway, <laughs> carry on. Now you said we can make comments though. You yeah. Said okay. If it's a message. comment, you go go nuts. Use whatever verse you want. Yeah. And qu and questions, but. Uh, my, my name is Chris Greer from Greenville, but um, I think I agree with you in the in four three for we who we who have believed enter that rest um, as an already reality. Um, I do wonder though because I do take which I think you do too um, nine and following as being future. Um, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. And my question, I guess, is I do understand also that in the book of Hebrews, dead works, obviously, that's negative. Here, though, I wonder if the works are negative at all because mm -hmm. they're compared with God's works. Yeah, and so, yeah that's a great question. Yeah. So in the sense that um, the works here are in, this, are, in are, I guess, um, described more in verse 11. Mm -hmm. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall. Because the writer of Hebrews is saying, let us, the ones who have already entered, be diligent to enter. Okay. And so it seems like the works there he's mentioning are not dead works, but the works and laboring you know, for the kingdom of heaven, putting off sin, holding fast our confession, mm -hmm. all those kind of things. Sure. So. Yeah, and I'll, I'll accept that. Thank you. Great. Now, the, the reality, too, and, and this is, I don't want to say, somewhat, somewhat unfortunate, but... Uh, Maybe I'll, I'll come back in 10 or 20 years and do an exegesis verse by verse of this passage. It'll satisfy everyone. Um, everything to, else was oh, everything else was good except that bad part. Except that oh, great, yeah. <laughs> great, well, if that's... Listen, if honestly, if that's the case, that, then, then that last session is by far the best percentage of good and bad I've ever had. So I'll take that any day. Any day. <laughs> See, uh, the other thing is, I was kind of, when you, when you started talking about this verse, I started reading them. I didn't listen to a word you said. So I don't know how to, I don't know how to respond to that. No, it, it's, it's a bit of a, instead of being pure exegesis, and I don't know if anything's pure exegesis, but the reality is instead of it being exegetical, it's trying to make some from Hebrews 3 and 4, for time and also for abilities, trying to make some wider biblical theological points instead of sort of anchoring everything I said when this passage was open sort of in this particular phrase. You know? So there's a sense in which I'd want to say that if that, if that caused some confusion, apologies, uh, not everything I said with this passage open was supposed to be taken as pure exegesis of this passage. Okay. And I also thought that when Andrew Lincoln in From Sabbath to Lord's Day uh, exegeted this text 
and referred to, made the connection with dead works. Uh, when he did that, and I plagiarized it uh, in my message, um, I wasn't completely sure he was right either, so I'm glad that you called him on that. Um, so, yeah, because I was thinking, Andrew, you know, this is edited by Don Carson, but at this point, I'm not sure about this point, but I'm going to say it anyway, just yielding to your authority, but I, we both had questions about his work. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is this is this is. Oh boy. Except for the quote from Fred. Yeah, except for the quote from Fred. Yeah. Um, no, let me say this. There's there's one thing I've learned from John Reisinger, one thing I've heard him say, which stuck in my head more than anything else, and that was this. If you steal from one person, it's plagiarism. If you steal from five people, it's scholarship. <laughs> this is a work of pure scholarship. <laughs> okay, yes. John Jeffries, Grant, Pennsylvania. A uh, comment and a question. Yes, sir. And, and it ties right into what you were presenting. Uh, years ago, I got to know a man very well in the store that I worked. He was an Orthodox Jewish man, a Moisha Dictor. One day, Moish came to me, and we had to kind of, he was a very tough man, uh, a good relationship, and he said, uh, John, do you believe in keeping the Sabbath? And that could have entered into a debate, but I knew him well enough, and I said, well, I wasn't going to give him, I wasn't going to insult him, and I wasn't going to give him a straight yes or no answer. I said, Moish, do you understand that there's at least three ways of people understand the answer to that question? Oh, no, he only understood one way. And so I, that became the greatest opportunity would go like this, <laughs> to share the gospel with that man by explaining what we heard here today. Amen. Praise the Lord. I don't know what was ever done with it, but, uh, and we can turn it one way or the other when we face the, the, the bad understandings. Um, that's the comment. Uh, the question, John chapter 5, I know that's not your text. <laughs> There's a John in the New Testament yeah. these days? Yeah. John chapter 5, now in, uh, not in the chapter on the Sabbath, but in, when Schreiner's dealing with question 33, how should we describe the role of the law in the Gospel of John? Uh, it comes up, it comes up other place, all, another place as well, but uh, the charges raised against him could be, uh, could be dismissed as groundless, but Jesus responded in an altogether astonishing way, saying, and this is verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. Mm -hmm. Jesus' reply is unexpected at two levels, and the most interesting is the first one. He admits that he was working. He avoids technical discussions of work entirely mm -hmm. and freely acknowledges that he was working. But if he was working, then was he not violating the Sabbath? Now, here's my question. I, I haven't seen this. If I have seen, ever seen it handled or dealt with, I forgot. Okay, it, that text, that principle that Jesus is bringing up there as a response, of course he's putting himself on a par with God, mm -hmm. and they're not going to be able to handle that. But what he says about God at that point would seem to me to go back to the creation Sabbath that as an eternal moral law, as we're common, we commonly hear, that the six 24-hour day, seven 24-hour day approach 
is not the law reflects the character of God that is not in the character of God it cannot be an eternal moral law because ever since then God has been working not keeping that mm-hmm. that order that principle it's not an, an eternal state of affairs in God you follow what I'm saying I do yes. have you ever come across anybody dealing with John 5:17 running it back to the seventh day of creation that God has been working ever since he hasn't been keeping that cycle yeah, well, actually, no, this, I'm, I'm somewhat surprised um, that you don't remember, um, but uh, John, John, the John Bunyan Conference, uh, May 4th, 2011, uh, a retired army officer dealt with that uh, during a question and answer period. Um, no, actually, you know, uh, no, Car- Carson talks about this um, because, and Carson talks about this in, in terms of there being long-standing debates amongst the Jews as to whether or not God was resting or working, and they multiplied the halakha. They multiplied sort of examples of ways that God could be working and resting. Because remember that the Sabbath law, or the way that the Halakha overlaid it, was in terms of sorts of things that you could do. You could, if you were out for a walk, uh, spit on a rock. But you could not spit in the dirt because your saliva would create a furrow and that could constitute plowing. Okay, that's one of, that's one of the laws, right? You can't... Um, you, can carry, you can't carry a burden outside. This is such a Carson way of saying things. You can't carry a burden outside your own domicile. I think he means house. I don't know. Uh, your, your house shaped like a dome. It's again, sort of an, an Eskimo theological debate. You, know, you, you, can't carry, you, you can't carry a burden outside of your home, your domicile. But you, you, you can carry one inside provided you don't have to raise your arms over your shoulders. Okay. Well, is God resting or is God working? Well, the general Jewish position was God had to be doing something or the whole universe would fall apart. Right? It's, it's sustained by the providential care of God. So he has to be doing something. But since even the highest heavens cannot contain God, God never... This is literally the argument. God never, in his work, ever has to lift anything over the sort of metaphorical height of his shoulders. Because every, even if the universe is his domicile, he's greater than the universe. And so even while he's observing rest, he can be at work in the universe without violating Sabbath. Okay. So you have this debate. Is God resting? Is God working? Well, God must be working. How is he not violating Sabbath? Right? And on and on. And some people will just say, well, because he's greater than Sabbath. This applies to man. In fact, what's interesting, too, is a lot of the Jewish rabbis, in fact, almost all of them universally, did not believe Sabbath had anything to do at all with the Gentile nations. It was the sign of their covenant. It was only for them. Which is also interesting, then, that it seems that this wasn't just the Jewish view. It was God's view. 
Because in the minor prophets, and the major prophets for that matter, the nations around Israel are castigated for their failure to observe what we could say, if we were careful, natural moral law. But there is never a word, with all of the words directed against Israel, about you are being punished for violating my Sabbath. My Sabbath, my Sabbath, my Sabbath. That's significant too because Jesus says it's my Sabbath. It's God's Sabbath in the, Old, in the Old Testament, right? Israel is being punished for violating Sabbath. There's not a single syllable breathed to any other nation when God is condemning them for all of their sin about violating Sabbath. Why? It had nothing to do with them. It had nothing to do with them. It was the sign of the covenant. In fact, I will say too, if, if the Decalogue is sort of a summary of the Mosaic Law Covenant, then wouldn't it be surprising if it didn't contain a law governing covenant sign or, or, or covenant seal or, or covenant symbol? In fact, just because of the Ten Commandments given to Israel, if it's a summary of their laws, the Reformed Baptists and others say, well, why on earth wouldn't we expect it to be eternal intrinsic moral law? If it's the summary of Israel's covenant, why wouldn't there be a ceremonial one in there? If you're going to follow that tripartite division, why not? There's no reason not to, right? It's never applied to Israel. Or it's never applied to the nations around Israel. So it's just for Israel. It doesn't apply to God. doesn't apply to the Gentiles. It's just for Israel. And so the, the general consensus is, yes, God is working. But the Pharisees had it all bound up with cases, you know, how, how he can still be resting while working the way we can be in our house and but no, Jesus cuts through all that. And he doesn't say, you know, God's still, my father's at work. Good thing that he's bigger than the universe. He just cuts through all of that. You know, for, forget this. God's at work because I am the image of my father, because I am the father's true son that is in terms of imitation. I do what my father did. We're called to do the same thing, right? Okay, very good. Excellent answers. Um, not bad questions. <laughs> Your questions were good foils for my answers. <laughs>